All right, welcome to another episode of the Grazing Sheep Podcast. I'm your host, Big Tom Perkins, along with Dr. Cameron Meyerly. Last week, uh, we talked a good bit about how I got started into farming and uh, how I ended up in the Katahdin sheep business. This week, we're going to find out how Cam got started. So, did you, you're there at the family home farm. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, that uh, technically, I think, would be fourth generation. Um, I don't know that I would. <laughs> had this discussion the other weekend that um, I'm probably more second generation, possibly even first generation back on the farm um, for what we're trying to do currently. Cause there was a kind of a lapse there um, of just individuals that kept retention of some of the land, um, but didn't have the, the same passion or value for agriculture that, um, that I've got today. And, and what my parents have. So yeah, that uh, that's where all the sheep are at. They're in East Central Ohio. Um, they're currently being managed by uh, my mom and dad. And that was a that was a graduation present there after um, high school when I went off to college. Um, now I don't think they thought I was going to spend nine years in school. So it's probably milking that one a little bit more than I ought to, but um, it's certainly turned into more of a family, family affair than just, you know, Cameron's kind of pet project. So that's been a fun thing to, to experience and um, navigate through. And you're working for Penn State as a Penn State small room extension specialist. Is that correct? Yeah. I, it's a lot of words in that title. I, I work in a county office here in northwestern Pennsylvania. Um, I knew, I guess if we rewind, start at the very beginning, uh, grandma growing up had sheep, uh, mostly Corridales, and that's kind of where it all started was with her passion for for sheep. And so when I was of age, when my parents moved back to Ohio, ended up receiving a ewe lamb when when I was old enough to get into 4-H. Uh-huh. And so from that ewe lamb uh there i think i was 10 years old at the time um i don't know that there's been a period that i haven't owned sheep since then so it's kind of odd someone asked me the other day how long have you raised sheep it's like well i guess technically 18 years so and and i don't know that i'd count all of those uh we we like to joke around so those that first you um was just a weather type sheep, primarily Suffolk background, and ended up keeping her. And that's kind of where it all went awry. Um, I'm thankful for it, but I'm sure there have been times that it's like, man, if I would have just been tough enough as a 10 year old to sell that thing at auction, like every other kid, probably wouldn't wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's some purpose and there's value in that that youth education. Um, so yeah, from there. Knew I wanted to have some use. Um, I think I was 15 at the time, went out and bought some purebred sheep. Uh, nothing special by any means, but it's certainly a good learning experience. We joke around you know, to this day. If anybody would have seen those ewes the first time I tried to share them, we'd probably all be in jail for animal cruelty. 
Because, oh, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm a 14, 14, 15-year-old kid out there. I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I might have been younger than that. I don't know. It's it's all a blur, but they were we got the wool off or I got the wool off and wasn't wasn't pretty, but decided that it'd be worth worth my time to attend a sharing school and still do still do some of that stuff today. Um just for for local guys and smaller flocks. But um nice thing, yeah, I tell people I can share sheep. I like to share sheep. Um but I, I raise sheep that don't have wool and I certainly don't, it's not why I raise that kind of sheep and we'll get into that, but um, I don't mind not having to shear them. So know, what was, a couple what times was that first breed that you bought that was uh purebred sheep? Yeah. So growing up in central Ohio, did the research. I remember I have fond memories of flipping through um you know so you want to raise sheep books you know as a kid that's what people know you're interested they find you at literature to kind of dive into and trying to land on a breed landed on shropshires and so at the time uh being involved in 4-h the goal was to have sheep that i could show at my my local uh county fair um we showed at some other some bigger shows and not successfully but it was just it was good exposure and good experience so yeah it started with with Shropshire sheep um looking back at those four that we started with about four bred ewes from a guy there in central ohio uh, it kind of makes sense you look at that breed and still today the population density of those sheep through ohio indiana illinois um there's a lot of of purebred Shropshires floating around and I won't get too political into into that whole breed organization, um, but it's just something to be aware of now that now that I'm an adult and we think about ethics going into into those breed associations and how we're impacting young individuals. What got me out of uh, that breed of sheep is I was dabbling in the the weather the weather sheep game, I guess you could call it, because I was buying buying market lambs every year. Um, and so it's like, well, that'd be one less. I've already got the sheep. I had a couple of crossbred ewes to make decent weathers with, um, with the goal of being competitive. Maybe I could save a couple hundred dollars there in, in the spring without going and, and buying that project. And went and took those ewes to be AI'd. And, and a really well-known breeder was at that AI date flushing um, one of his purebred ewes to a ram that was not a registered Shropshire. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sitting there, you know, I've spent by no means a fortune like other individuals, but you know, I'm, I'm 15, 16 years old, um, trying to go to these, these public auctions, these uh, breed auctions in the spring and spend money to invest in sheep in what, in my opinion, were purebred sheep to improve the sheep that I had at home. Uh -huh. And then you go and you see, uh, again, a prominent breeder uh, kind of going outside of the breed to bring in genetics, you know, superior genetics from another breed to improve his sheep. Um, and you kind of sit there and say, well, why don't, 
why don't I do that? Like if I'm trying, I'm doing it the wrong way to make rapid improvement mm-hmm. if everybody else is doing this. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of that ethical dilemma for me. It's like, if I'm going to raise crossbred sheep at the end of the day, and of course, again, as that teenager, I'm not going to go up and, and confront the guy and be like, hey, are these actually like, are you getting into the club land business or are these, you know, purebreds that you're going to sell next year? Yeah. I'm not going to do that as a, as a young person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some assumptions being made, um, but the older you get and the more you talk to people, it's like, oh yeah, there's, there are very, there's white face sheep and there's black face sheep. And then there's Katahdin's, but, um, but, but those are your two, your two breeds of sheep. And it took some, took me a while to understand what they were getting at. And that's, we've got a lot of crossbred sheep showing as purebreds in the U.S. Yeah. And if I'm going to raise crossbred sheep, I was of the opinion at that time, they were going to be decent sheep. Yeah. Um, they were going to be good crossbreds. So ended up selling the, selling the Shropshires and um, just had some weather type views and had a lot of, had a lot of fun with those. Um, we were competitive at our, in a local sense. Um, and what I really, what I really enjoyed out of that segment was interacting with individuals that were me as a 10 year old. So selling those lambs into those 4 H families, um, seeing them have success and using it as an educational tool uh, to expose them both to agriculture and uh, just sheep and and raising those animals and and probably uh, to see it come full circle, we sold the weather type use in twenty one the spring of twenty one maybe twenty twenty I can't remember now um, but there was a four hr that I had sold some sheep to him his first year and so he actually bought some of those ewe lambs as and is breeding uh, some of his own market land projects today. Um, so yeah, it's it's neat to see it come full circle. Okay. Um, yeah, and part of the reason for selling those guys, um, we had them out on pasture. We were semi-rotational grazing at the time and dealt with parasites a lot, dealt with foot rot a lot. Um, Obviously, our biosecurity wasn't as good as what it needed to be because in that, and this this is an excuse, but in that game, you are bringing in a lot of different sheep and there's rapid turnover because you're trying to keep up with the trend. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that that's all to say that uh, got me interested in animal science and just agriculture in general and uh, wanted to pursue that further you know as one of those kids that uh, knew what they wanted to at least investigate in college Um, and so landed on a two-year school one of the branches at OSU Um, what was always frustrating to me is you know in high school you'd get questions like oh you just want to be a farmer it's like well ideally that would be awesome but I am not set up like there is not generational uh, land and finances to support me in doing that. Yeah. So I have to go find another avenue in agriculture. Like, okay, so you want to be a vet. 
It's like, no, I don't really want to be a vet. It's like, well, what are you going to do? It's like, that's a great question. Like, mm-hmm. but, it, you know, you get to the point where you just say, like, oh, I'll find something because you're tired of explaining that there's job opportunities within agriculture. Within yeah. agriculture. Um, so anyway, ended up in Worcester at, at uh, ATI, OSU ATI. Met a lot of really fun people, um, both students and um, professors there that, um, you know, my freshman roommate just lives over in, in East Palestine. We hang out to this day and heavily involved in the dairy industry um, and, and maybe not now, but just knows a lot about dairy cattle. And, yeah. and that was one of the advantages. I wasn't in a, in a dorm with three other sheep kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in a, in a dorm and ran around with a bunch of dairy kids, knew some beef people um, and actually didn't even go to school for small ruminant anything. Um, was convinced that I was going to go to ATI, get an associate's degree, um, just two year degree for swine production and management. And after my freshman year, had an internship on a sow farm uh, there in central Ohio. And they were, I think they had 5,000 sows um, in that unit. And it was just a farrowing operation. Yeah. And I remember making minimum wage, which it was an internship. That's what I expected. Yeah. Um, and, and on top of that, I'm paying additional dollars for the credits for it yeah. to count toward, towards my degree. But I remember waking up at 4.30 every morning, hopping in my 1992 Chrysler LeBaron and cruising right along down to to the sow unit. And we'd start work at five and we'd be done by one o'clock, which, you know, which is crazy to look back at because like to do that today, I have no desire. And that's yeah. why I ended up doing, doing what I'm doing today because, um, you know, the level of commitment, I remember as a 19 year old, during the summer, you know, still had sheep, we're baling hay. Um, it was great, you know, for dad because his wagon help was there at one o'clock. Yeah. After he got off work to hop on the wagon and bale square bales. So, um, you know, you'd go to bed. I religiously went to bed at eight o'clock, had some, some room darkening curtains, shut those up, and it didn't take much to fall asleep at, at 8 p.m. I imagine. Um, yeah. And it was, probably the the low point in that internship um i remember you had to work you had two weekends off and you had to work a weekend yeah and so work that weekend so it was 12 straight days and work that weekend and for full-time employees and that's the key to this story for full-time employees that following wednesday you could either choose to take that half a day off or if you work the full day um, they would credit you a half day vacation. It's like, well, I'm not getting vacation anyway. Yeah. So I'll take the half day off. So I'm packing my stuff up and the uh, manager there, she's like, where are you going? And I was like, oh, I'm just taking my half day, you know, cause I work this weekend. She's like, oh, that's only for full-time employees. We need you here today. <laughs> and I, I remember just being so like wind out of the sails, ready yeah. to walk out the door and saying. I'm done because yeah. it was just that 12 day stint was one of the hardest things I think I've ever done. 
Um, you know, we were averaging about 10 miles a day walking, uh, um, but I wouldn't, I would not give that experience up for anything. Yeah. Um, Cause even to this day, in terms of just swine knowledge to get in and, and do it and have a hands-on experience, um, I would do it again in a heartbeat to just a refresher because it felt like such an accomplishment. Um, so yeah, that was year one of college and then uh, went back up. Well, the other portion of that to where I'm at today is I remember your prominent genetics company in the swine world came to visit this sow unit. And I remember sitting there and mind you, I just had all my freshman animal science introductory swine courses, nutrition, um, repro. And I remember sitting there again, 19 year old, I'm not saying a word. I'm the intern, not a full-time employee. I remember these guys, there were three of them came from this company to kind of look over the pigs and talk about just overall management and what improvements could be made. And I remember them sitting on the one side of the table and you've got the, the head manager and then the, the breeding manager, the farrowing manager sitting there on the other side of the table. I'm over in the corner and they're asking questions. The company guys are asking questions to those managers and like in my head, and firing back answers just mm -hmm. of what should be being done or what is currently being done. And um, I remember those managers, the both breeding and farrowing manager, just kind of stumbling on, they didn't have the information to answer the questions. Yeah. Um, and then of course the company guys are kind of rebuttaling back and saying, well, you know, you need to be doing this. And of course, in my mind, it's like, well, yeah, that's, that's what should be done. Um, and it was kind of at that moment that I had established in my mind, I wanted to sit on one side of the table. Um, yeah. I wanted to have the experience of, of those managers on the other side of the table. But in terms of what I could contribute to agriculture, I wanted to sit on that other side of the table. And I wasn't going to be able to do that with a two-year degree. Um, so going back that second year, I uh, had a job for a, a great family. They were running 600 head of sows, farrow to finish um, in Worcester. And, and it was, that was another great experience. And I remember kind of pulling information from that internship and sharing with that family on what, what other companies and producers are doing and how we could impl implement that into this um uh, smaller but still a commercially relevant operation um and i know they appreciated that and it was a lot of fun to just share that knowledge so that's probably where some of the roots started for um the idea of extension or or the passion for it and so left uh, ati and and went to columbus and finished my four-year degree um, a bachelor's degree there and that's in animal science and it wasn't until that spring of my senior year that was I was taking a small room in a production class and talking with the instructor who was finishing up his master's degree at the time. And there was a class period where he had talked about what his master's project was. 
and I had no exposure to to that side of the scientific realm. And I was like, wait, you can do research with sheep? Like, it's not just mice and rat lab, you mm -hmm. have repro stuff. Yeah. And there's there's like production based research that can be done at a university to get a master's degree. I had never heard of that. Um, you know, my dad had a master's degree and it was all classroom work. You know, you the standard model for getting a graduate degree was well, you pay another, you know, year and a half or two years of tuition, go somewhere, sit down in the classroom, do that for the next two years, and then you got your master's degree. Yeah. Um, and so I remember we had a, a group of of Ohio State Extension agents come in and talk. And the one guy had mentioned, like, you know, if you enjoy getting out and making hay and raising your own animals, extension's a great job for the flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I'm yeah, I remember seeing there going, that is intriguing. Yeah. Now, that is interesting to me. And at the time, they really wanted you to have, you know, Ohio, at Ohio at least, um, they really wanted you to have a master's degree to be competitive uh, for those those extension positions. They'd like you to have, you know, a two year master's degree. That being said, there weren't a lot of openings at the time. Um, and this other opportunity uh, at WVU kind of opened up and and fell in my lap. So speaking with that instructor, he had the opportunity to take a PhD, stay at Ohio State, or go to WVU. And he had mentioned, I know Dr. Bowdrich's down there. He's looking for, he's got some funding looking for graduate students. So I remember sending an email, you know, looking back, like not knowing anybody there, what I was going to do. It wasn't that far away. It's only three hours from, from where I grew up. Um, so again, enticing. Yeah. Um, and, and talk to him he's like yeah that come down we'll meet you we'll show you around what i didn't really know was that is like the vetting process and being on the other side of that vetting process um i would have been totally freaked out if he would have said yeah come on down and and we'll throw you in the bullpen with the other grad students and they'll tell me whether or not you're a good fit yeah um, so apparently i was fine i remember again vividly remember that day um, it was like five degrees and it's sitting on top of the hill in, in Morgantown, the animal science building and the wind is whipping. And I'm like, this is, this is worse than central Ohio. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we clicked, enjoyed Dr. Bowdridge again. I had no idea what I was doing, um, but decided that that was, that was the option we were going to pursue. It just felt right. Again, it, it fell in my lap, and I can't take a lot of credit for all of those events leading up to that. Um, but when you feel that there's a plan for a direction for your life, you just you have to pursue it and take advantage of that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so um, at the time, I was engaged, and uh, my, my wife now, um, which I probably need to specify that because... The fact that she didn't leave me while we were living in Morgantown is <laughs> shocking. But um, she's like, well, if if you feel that this is what we need to do, like, we'll do it. And uh, went, 
checked out apartments and from March of when I first sent the email started July 4th. Um, and I remember July 5th, Bowderch had me in the barn sharing sheet. Yeah. And, um, you know, that wasn't a sign of what the pace in which that lab in that environment moves. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is, you're moving all the time. We had a lot of fun. There's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, now on the tail end of it, um, and I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity. So we moved down there. Um, again, kind of like the rest of my academic career, was going to be there for two years and kick it back over to Ohio, be an extension, and you know live happily with my sheep on a couple of acres. And so most of my work there was dealing with terminal sire um, use on commercial sheep. And so that was my thesis project. And I remember kind of where I'm at now with the Katahdins, the defining moment. Um, when I started, Dr. Andrew Weaver also started at WVU and um, yeah, best friends to this day. And mm-hmm. I remember, again, these ideas you have of people just before you get to meet them, uh, knew that Bowdridge was bringing a PhD candidate. I was starting with my master's at the time. You've got this idea of who this person is going to be. Never looked him up. Um, and I'm like, I bet this guy's going to be a jerk. I mean, he's just coming off this high of finishing grad school at, at Virginia Tech. Um, he's obviously smart because he's coming up here to do, do his doctorate with Dr. Bowdridge. Um, and he gets there. And so it's like, you're almost defensive. It's like, I don't want to, like, I'm scared of, <laughs> of what this guy's going to be. And just the nicest guy, absolutely yeah. brilliant. Um, and to this day, I mean, a valued, valued friend in my life. And and some of the stuff we've worked on, it's been a lot of fun. In grad school, the relationships are are even better. And that's what I think the true value of of that grad school environment um, was especially there in, in that Bowdridge lab. But how did you yeah, move I remember. In, how did you move into Katahdin? Yeah. So Dr. Weaver was there working on validating the fecal A count EBV for his PhD work and did a lot of other cool stuff. But growing up in Ohio, Katahdin sheep were not necessarily the cool thing to do. Yeah. Um, when I was when I was in 4 H and um and even you know further in, I had seen them before, but the general consensus of what I had been told was, well, if you want to raise goats with tails, you know, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um so it was very negative, this this connotation around them. And like, well, I don't know that I have an interest in in that. Um and doing that. And so I remember these lambs, my first exposure, we had these crossbred sheep coming out of, of Virginia Tech. They were Texel, Suffolk, purebred, Katahdin, crossbred lambs um, that were in the grow safe. This is the third year of the terminal sire project coming out of Glade. And I got thrown into that. That was my kind of initial startup of can I run a run a project? Can I collect data? And process that data. And 
I remember looking at these crossbred sheep on on full feed. They were in the feedlot, and I had seen other feedlot sheep. Like these are these are good sheep. Um, you know, and that's kind of where that commercial side of of the sheep deal kind of met with where I was at. And like I could do this, have sheep that just performed, uh, and saw those purebred Katahdins in there, and was intrigued because they weren't the way they were performing in the feedlot was different than how my brain had been trained to think of them. Mm -hmm. And so um, fast forward to when Andrew starts his project and we put those lambs into the grow safe and those were all purebred Katahdins, um, you know, selected for high and low fecal egg count rams within that project. And again, looking at them, they come in off of grass and you kind of hear the production cycle of that research flock. And to me, it was a no brainer. So down there at Glade, they're exposing these ewes in October. They lamb in like 21 days, kick them out on grass. And then, um, you know, they were weaning them. Some were saying, or I think all those were coming up to, to WVU then to be analyzed for, for fecal egg count under a, uh, an artificial infection and you start looking at that production model of short time exposure short lambing window and they're generating offspring um, that are coming up and, and we're performing exceptionally in that feedlot environment um, and for me that was intriguing and so when I go back to the I circle back to the idea that I don't raise Katahdin sheep because I don't have to shear them. And I know that's a, that is a selling point for a lot of breeders. Mm -hmm. For me, I think it's silly that we call them a meat breed of sheep. And again, these are personal opinions. So don't hit me up with a bunch of hate mail, but I am of the opinion that they are a maternal breed of sheep. They are our polypay counterpart that does not possess wool. And that's our goal with the sheep there at home um, is for those to be maternal ewes that raise lambs. And if I need to make a meat animal out of it, obviously those ram lambs are going for meat. If I need to make a superior carcassed animal, I can find the breed to do that on those ewes. Mm -hmm. um, but I need them to be mothers first. Yep. So, I knew then that we needed to at least try these sheep out and, and invest in, in some of those genetics. And so, um, again, that was my first exposure to NSIP as well. And yeah. um, took some convincing. I was like, I just don't understand it. Like, And, again, Andrew kind of pulled me through that part of it. The Texels there at WBU were enrolled in NSIP. So you have two different looks, uh, a terminal side or a carcass-minded side, and then that that U.S. hair index or that maternal side of, of what you can select for. And so didn't go out and buy a bunch of NSIP sheep because I'm a graduate student without a lot of money, but found a guy in West Virginia uh, that had some, what I, of the opinion, were really good commercial use. Uh, and the reason I could say that is because they're still around. Mm -hmm. um, so ended up with those commercial ewes, um, bought a group of, I think there were 14 in year one, and then 
year two, bought another 10. And that's kind of how we started there in, in 2018, I guess, would have been the the conception of of the Katahdins there and um, knew the value of NSIP. So called Tom Hodgman, was playing around with the searchable database and noticed that this, uh, this one farm was showing up for these parameters that I was putting in and um, talked with him on on what rams he had and and for a young person was you know great to work with him um that didn't know anything about ebvs or, or nsip and ended up with a, a really nice ram that to start out with did a lot of things right and um you know what's funny is you know, he lives clear up in maine it's like we've just been missing paths um i think kathy Bailey brought that ran back from Katahdin Expo and dropped him off. And he was, he was a green, you know, springborn ram lamb. We got him up and he bred, bred all those ewes that first year. Yeah. Um, we used him for a couple of years and then moved him on to another NSIP flock. But, uh, you know, just met Tom there not, not too long ago. Um, it's like, well, it's nice to meet you in person, but it's funny, you know, this group of Katahdin producers, it's like, we all know each other, mm-hmm. even though we may not see each other. And we probably know each other more on how those sheep are, are looking in that searchable database than, yeah. than anything else. So it's comical to me. But, um, but yeah, started with that and then have worked closely with some breeders there in Ohio, um, just getting rams, acquiring rams, and um, trying to grow as rapidly as possible. So that's kind of where we're at. That was a very short portion on where where we're at in the Katahdin deal um but yeah sold all the blackface sheep we were running some polypays in confinement and those are all gone um own a set of of really good texel use uh, mm-hmm. with the goal of generating terminal sires for Katahdin producers um with Dr. Weaver after that WVU dispersal so we're excited to to be playing around with those as well um and those are due here in about a week. So um, those are going to be all AI sired out of UK Rams. So we're going in, jumping head first in that deal. But well, that yeah, that's kind of, yeah, that's the rundown on on where Cameron's been in the sheep business. Um, I guess you touched briefly on the, the Penn State gig. And so uh, Dr. Bowdridge again had funding and, and said, what would you think about sticking around for a PhD? And I said, huh. That's funny. I'm not smart enough to do that um, because I've been sitting in a room with in an office with four other, you know, PhD candidates, and um, by no means feel adequate. Um, and he's like, "Oh, don't sell yourself short." He's like, "You've you've got it. You can do it. Um, it's just whether or not you want to do it." And it's like, talk to Megan again. You know, questions on whether why she's still still around um it's good she's a, a great lady but um but yeah decided to stay in morgantown for for that phd and penn state opened up a position with a small ruminant uh specific component to a county-based agent and um i wasn't even looking for a job but Dr. Bowdridge comes down and says, hey, you need to apply for this because this doesn't happen every day. It's like, well, I still have a year left. 
He's like, yeah, I know. You're going to take the job and then you're going to write your dissertation and we're going to get you out of here. And it's like, if this, like, that's the plan, I'm all for it. Um, so I took that job and it's, it's been a lot of fun working with the Penn State crew, getting education out to producers, not only in Pennsylvania, but surrounding areas. That's how I met you, Tom. And yep. so I'm thankful. Nothing else comes out of this job to meet Tom Perkins. It's been worthwhile. So, <laughs> um, but <laughs> finished that dissertation and uh, defended last fall uh, dealing with nutrition and uh, its role in parasites, uh, internal parasites in in sheep. Um, and we won't get into the, the nitty gritty of that, but yeah, it's, I've just been very thankful for the opportunities that have been presented again to me by other individuals um, that that I've been able to take advantage of, and and it's been fun. So um, the hope is is to get back to those sheep in Ohio and and keep them keep them growing, keep them uh, expanding. Um, you know, I'm 28. I had told my parents and and. Grandma and I had talked about this. You know, if I get a 300 use by the time I'm 30, it's like I could just check the box, sell everything, and just, you know, when people ask you, well, how many use were you running? Oh, 300. Yeah. You know, that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, we'll see if it happens. It's, yeah. it is physiologically possible. Mm -hmm. um, but we're running out of barn space. So, yeah. Well, speaking of running out, we're running out of time. I know. We're coming up on our time here. It's been great hearing how you're hearing your journey and how you've you've come so far in such a short period of time. At uh at 28, I'm not even sure what I was even wanting to do when I grew up. <laughs> well, and that's kind of I will say after you leave grad school, um, you get to this point, it's like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. So, there's yeah. there's some exciting things on the horizon and we're just going to keep waiting for those opportunities to keep dropping in. So, well, good. Well, listen, it's been great catching up with you and, and uh, listening to your journey. And I'd like to thank everybody for listening to the Grazing Sheep podcast. And uh, just keep listening and follow and subscribe and all that fun stuff. So, we'll catch up with you later, Cam. All right. Sounds Take good. Care. Tom. Have a talk great day. You. you too. Bye.